Well, it is good to be with you, and we're going to continue in Galatians, our series called No Other Gospel. Uh, two Sundays ago, as I said, Bruce stepped in last Sunday, but the Sunday before that, we began a little two-part mini-series in chapter 5 called Six Characteristics of False Teachers, and we looked at characteristics one through three. Do you remember what they, what they were or what they are? I doubt you do if I don't. So I had to go back and look at what they were. Uh, it's amazing when you preach the Word every week, you just kind of move from one subject to another, and sometimes it's hard to retain uh, what you were doing because you're moving so quickly. But uh, we did look at one through three, and that was that false teachers hinder believers from obeying the truth. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 7. They teach persuasions that are not from Christ. That was verse 8. And they contaminate the church, right, just as leaven, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. We saw that in verse 9. And this morning we're going to deal with part 2 and focus on characteristics 4 through 6. Please take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5 verses 10 through 12. That's where we see these remaining three characteristics. I'd like to go ahead and pray before we get to work. Gracious Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves to you and to the authority of your word now. We pray that you proclaim your word to us and that you grant us illumination and understanding. Help us to see the truth here, to hear the truth, to understand the truth, to know the truth, and to obey and live out the truth. Help us to understand a little bit more about false teachers. And uh, really what you're doing is equipping your church to be able to recognize these adversaries who are in churches so that we can uh, make the right call and decision concerning them and deal with them properly the way that you would deal with them. I pray, Lord, that, that you would raise up our conviction today to reach at least close to the, the, your level of conviction about false teachers. You take them very seriously. And it's, we're kind of living in a sad dispensation or time where a great many Christians don't take false teachers seriously. And so may we not be among them. Help us to, to take them seriously as we learn about them. And help us to stand on the bedrock of truth and to uh, just preach the truth and defend the truth and do it in such a way that is, that is winsome and helpful and that brings you glory. So we commit this time to you. Teach us from your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we can pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago and look at the fourth characteristic. What is it? Number four, they will be judged. False teachers will be judged. We see this in verse 10. And this is how Paul says it here. He says, I have confidence in the Lord. He's speaking to the Galatian believers. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Verse 10a, Paul really introduces this devastating declaration, because that's what we see in verse 10. He, he introduces it with a first a word of encouragement to the true believers in these Galatian churches. He is trusting that they will heed his warnings and refuse to accept any other view or any other silly false version of the gospel. He is confident that they will not only 
reaffirm the true gospel that he's reiterating for them. I mean, this is what they got saved by, and now they're being led astray. But he's confident that they, after reading this letter, that they will reaffirm their commitment to the true gospel. That they will reaffirm their commitment and belief in justification by faith alone, which is, in a nutshell, the gospel. And not only that they will reaffirm and, and trust in what he's saying here and go back to the basics, not only will they do that, but that they will even take up a defensive position. Paul has a, a confidence here that once they read this letter, they'll do the right thing. They'll do the right thing. Now, the question is, how, how does he know? What, what, what is the basis for his confidence, Right? Is he being a little presumptive? What is the basis of his confidence? And I think we find the answer in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And keep in mind, in most of his epistles, he was dealing with these sorts of errors. The Judaizers were not only attacking the Galatian believers, but they were spread out and moving through many of the churches that he had planted. But he said this, and I think we see the answer in chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians. He says, I am confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The basis for Paul's confidence that the Galatians will accept no other false gospel and believe the true one and hold the line, the basis for his confidence was God himself. His confidence is in God who will direct, steer, lead, convict, ground these believers in the gospel if he hasn't already done so. He knew that, that God preserves true believers by keeping them in the truth through His sovereign power, and that God brings true believers to completion through His sovereign power. Paul's confidence was not based upon the Galatians themselves or based upon human strength or ability. It was not based on these people. I, I just know that you're going to choose to do the right thing ultimately because of your strength and who you are. In fact, Paul literally talks about how he puts zero confidence in the flesh. Because why? Because the flesh is weak, because the flesh is by nature wicked, and because the flesh is ultimately worthless. And this is described, he describes these three facets of the flesh in Philippians 3.3 3 and and then Jesus describes uh, one of them in, in Matthew 26, 41. Then we see it again in Galatians 5, 17. And then in John 6, 63. That's where it talks about the flesh being weak and wicked and ultimately worthless. Of no value at all in spiritual categories. So Paul is not saying that my confidence is in your flesh and in your ability. It's in the God who brings to fruition that which he starts in your life. He's talking about salvation. Paul's confidence was based entirely upon God, entirely upon his sovereign, omnipotent power to carry out that which he began. It's very foolish for us to put any confidence in the flesh. The Bible says nothing good about flesh. Paul knows that the believers in the Galatian churches will take no other view because of what Jesus promised. Jesus said, I give them eternal life. 
and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, John 10, 28 and 30, or 230. His confidence is based on the sovereign power of God, the omnipotent power of God upon the the promises of Jesus that no believer will be lost. If no believer, true believer, will be lost, then that means that by default and logically that true believers will stick to the truth. They may become perplexed by it or confused by it at times, but they're not going to abandon the true gospel for a false gospel. No true believer will do that. And it's not because of their flesh or ability. It's because of God. This is what he's saying. If you are a true believer, you will take no other view. You will reach completion. Why? Because God is going to make that happen. God will bring it to pass. He talks about in Romans 8, those who God foreloved, he predestined. What? Unto glorification. That's the final component of salvation. That happens at the resurrection when you get a new body. Nothing can thwart God's sovereign plan for you if you were in Christ. It's going to happen. You may not feel like things are going to happen, but feelings are part of the flesh. You may not think that you're going to reach the finish line, but you will. Doesn't mean you'll, you won't have to go through much travail on the way there. If you need a little dose of reality, go back and read Bunyan's phenomenal work, right? Go back and, go back and read Pilgrim's Progress. It illustrates the, the difficulty of being a Christian, but the ultimate finality of glorification. They reach the celestial city. Christian reaches it. I think for us, sometimes we just we don't feel like God's working in our lives and that we're not making progress. And it's happening, even if you can't measure it or sense it. But God will bring it to pass. He will certainly bring to fruition and completion what He began in you. He, God does not, God is, our God is not a God who starts something and doesn't finish it. That's us. That's me. Sometimes it's not my fault because the dumb battery on my mower runs out halfway through. So my lawn has a mohawk. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I switched to battery power. I'm green. Not really. <laughs> exactly. God finishes what He begins. He finishes what He starts. And he has wed His Son to a bride and He will glorify and beautify that bride through sanctification and present that bride, a holy, perfect bride to his son on that day. It's going to happen. You're going to reach completion. You're going to reach the finish line just as certainly as these Galatian believers are going to stick to the truth, the actual believers in these churches. In verse 10b, Paul really slams the hammer down on the Judaizers here and every false teacher. He just drops the sledgehammer on them. He refers to them as those who are troubling you because the Galatians were being 
troubled by some, some men, some false teachers. Is this not what false teachers do? Uh, they trouble churches. They trouble true believers. How? By distorting the gospel of Christ. Paul already talked about this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 7. This is how they trouble churches and trouble true believers. And Paul also says, and for this reason, that's why they are accursed, anathema. Galatians 1, 8 and 9. And this is why, as he says here in verse 10b, they will what? Bear the penalty. What is the penalty that a false teacher will bear? Paul doesn't say what it is here, but we know what it is from Scripture. It's judgment. It's judgment. It's divine judgment. It's holy judgment. It's righteous judgment. Jesus described this divine judgment in, a, in many, many places during His earthly ministry. In fact, He spoke about judgment and hell more than anyone else in all of Scripture. You want to know what the number one subject on Jesus' mind was, if you go back and do a survey of the Gospels and look at all His teachings, you'll find out that it was about judgment and hell and those sorts of things. That's what He talked about more than anything else. Constantly warning and warning and warning His hearers. And that's what we're to do. Matthew 13, 40 to 42, he's in a section on parables. He declares this, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will, will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the destiny, this is the fate, this is the future of false teachers. They will be gathered together along with other, all the other wicked and sinful and those who haven't repented and trusted in Christ, but they will be gathered together and thrown into the, his own description, fiery furnace where there is two horrifying sounds, weeping endless weeping, and the gnashing of teeth. This is just another way of saying they will be cast into hell, into the lake of fire. Revelation 19, 20, chapter 20, verse 10, and verse 14, and verse 15 of chapter 20. You see the lake of fire there, which is, just refers to hell. And I believe the Bible very clearly teaches varying degrees of punishment in hell. There's a really, really hot part, and there's a hotter part and a hottest part. Hell is unimaginably terrible for all who go there, undoubtedly. But there are some who will be cast into hell who will experience a higher level of torment than others. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? Isn't that hard to imagine? Matthew chapter 23, verse 14 According to the HCSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You devour widows' houses and make long prayers just for show. This is why you will receive a harsher punishment. Harsher. Of course, we could very easily use Jesus' teachings about Tyre and Sidon and, and Gomorrah and these sorts of places where He says that 
that those places would have been better off than, than Capernaum where Jesus performed endless miracles. The scriptures present varying degrees of punishment in hell. Anyone who's in hell is being punished, but there are some who are experiencing a greater torment there. Based on James chapter 3, verse 1, I believe the highest levels of punishment and torment in hell are reserved for people like false teachers. Why wouldn't it be? They're the ones who twist and distort the gospel. They're the ones who deceive people with a false Christ. See, I think there's a higher level of punishment, maybe the highest level for those who do that, for those who preach a kind of gospel. Yeah, who comes to mind? Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, even Roman Catholics in a sense. I don't mean to sling judgment against them, but they have false gospels. The person who proclaims a false gospel. See, I think, you're, I think you're better off in hell, and that sounds crazy to say that, but I think you're better off in hell if you just don't talk about Jesus. Just preach your false religion, but as soon as you add Jesus to it, you get a higher level of punishment in hell if you don't come to your senses and repent. Judged with greater strictness, Jesus says this, of the scribes and Pharisees who proclaimed essentially a Judaistic false gospel and who ripped people off. They were hypocrites. That's what's coming for them. They're already there. This is a couple thousand years ago. Essentially, Paul is teaching us is what I said already, and that's in my prayer, and that's that God takes false teachers very seriously, very seriously. They twist his gospel. They threaten his people. They persecute his people. They serve God's adversary, Satan, the demons, the world. And I'll tell you what, in this age of, of complacency and, and spiritual compromise, God is calling his true people through his word, to take false teachers as seriously as he does. And we see, in my opinion, we see this call right here in the text. He's equipping us through this small portion in Galatians so that we will take false teachers seriously. Now, there are many pastors, and I'm kind of thankful for this, but there are many pastors who have, in a sense, answered this call Right? But they're still compromising when it comes to the music that's coming out of these false churches. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Mm -hmm. they, they, they have, in a sense, recognized that someone like Bill Johnson up in Reading is undoubtedly a false teacher. But boy, do they use those Bethel songs in their services. Oh, they, they know now that Stephen Furtick is a total quack and he's dangerous, but boy, do they love those elevation songs. Yeah, yeah. You just can't make it without those songs. They've discovered the truth about Brian Houston and Hillsong, but their worship teams are still doing What a Beautiful Name Every Other Sunday. 
Oh, yeah. Just a, a question. Why would we continue to use songs that are coming out of false churches? Hmm? Songs that are, quite frankly, just riddled with terrible theology. Why, why are the songs used but the, the teachers and pastors of these churches denounce while we're using the songs? Why? Because the songs sound good, and quite frankly, they're fun to play and they're fun to sing. But, you know, I was looking at the Word the other day, and I was trying to find out how those fun to sing and, and, and fun to play, how that's requisite to how we choose our music. It's kind of weird. I couldn't find anything in here that says, make sure you find song, songs that are fun to sing, fun to play, have never-ending choruses. He loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. Right? That's pretty annoying. That's most of the music today. So, so, so I don't track with Bill Johnson, but I love Bethel music. That's a mentality. That's an attitude today. And maybe, maybe I'm, I'm splitting hairs here, and maybe my conviction is just a little too broad, but I just don't understand why we insist on using the songs coming out of churches that have these pastors. And they're not even pastors. These are false teachers. Why, why are we doing that? Plus, the songs are just, they're just cruddy. We need to remember Paul's words back in verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And maybe we need to understand something else here, that when you actually sing the songs that are coming out of these churches, they're getting paid for that. So you're supporting their ministry. Did you know that? CCLI is a licensing agency that you have to belong to, and you pay them X amount of dollars depending on what level of, of, of service you want from them, but you have to pay them every year a couple hundred bucks to be able to do the songs that we do, all the songs that we do. And some of that money goes to those churches and those false teachers when, those, when our churches do their songs. We're actually paying to use the music. That's the law. We have to do that. So when somebody says, well, it's kind of harmless to do their music, it's no big deal, you're paying to use their music. You're supporting a false ministry. See, this is a conviction that we reached just a, a few years back because we did all those songs too. And yeah, we denounced the teachers, but we liked the songs. And then we realized we were pouring money into their coffers. Why would we support something like that? We just don't take false teachers as seriously as God does. We don't. Well, you know, I know Joel Osteen's a false teacher, but, you know, hey, you know, whatever. Really? Hey, whatever? Why not warn people about him? I remember trying to do that on Facebook. I had so many people attack me. It was like, okay, he's a great preacher. I mean, it was just, there's so much ignorance in churches today regarding these things. Do you know what they did to false teachers in the Old Testament? Killed them viciously. And today we're like, well, you know, to each his own, and he's over there in Texas, no big deal. No harm, no foul to me, out of sight, out of mind. No. It's a dis false teachers are a disgrace to God. They attack the glory of God. 
And, and most of the music coming out of these churches undermines the gospel because it's so man-centered. Newsflash, this is a God-centered book. So, so when we start doing man-centered stuff, that's just idolatry. We need to remember Paul's words. We need to develop a biblical conviction on this subject, and we need to stop compromising. We, we act like there's just no other music out there. We've got psalms and hymns right in the Scripture. We've got a lot of hymns that have been written by a lot of really good hymns. <laughs> and some hers. Stupid joke. We, we, we've got a couple thousand years worth of music here, folks. We've got uh, 3,000 years worth of music if we look at the Psalms. We have plenty of music. God has provided all that we would ever need to worship Him in spirit and truth. But we just got to have that feel-good stuff and make those compromises. We need to stop compromising. If we have dismissed false teachers, we need to dismiss their resources and songs as well. We need to go all the way. I, you know, maybe I'm making a big issue about this here at this church, but it's a big issue in our culture because right now as I speak, there's churches that are singing this swill. They don't like Bill Johnson, but they love that music. I say cast out the whole thing. Throw that baby out with the bathwater. Don't give them money. Don't support their heretical ministries. Number four, they're going to be judged, right? False teachers are going to be judged most strictly. Terrifying what the, what they're going to have, what's going to happen to them. Number five, false teachers, they persecute true teachers. This is, goes hand in hand. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, this is Paul speaking, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In an effort to gain more trust and acceptance, the Judaizers were claiming that Paul himself was preaching circumcision for justification. They were trying to make themselves like Paul at his level of authority and all that and say, look, you know, accept it from us because it's what he teaches. Now, I think they were likely pointing to the fact that Paul had young Timothy circumcised before he joined the apostle and Silas during the second missionary journey. And we've talked about this. This took place in actually a Galatian city called Lystra. Paul had Timothy circumcised for ministry reasons, not for justification, like the Judaizers were asserting or proclaiming. The Jews, the apostle Paul wanted to reach with the gospel, they weren't even going to give him an audience if he traveled around with an uncircumcised half-Greek, half-Jew named Timothy. Acts 16, 1 through 3. See, Paul and Silas added Timothy to their ministry, but he was an uncircumcised half-Greek, half-Jew. And the first thing Paul thought of was, well, this is going to stymie our ministry to the Jews because they're not going to listen to us. So, Timothy, would you be willing to do this? And Timothy said, absolutely, I'll do it. I'll do what is necessary for the gospel. He sacrificed his flesh. When Paul, remember this, when Paul wanted to win Jews, he became like Jews. When he wanted to win Gentiles, he became like Gentiles. When he wanted to win the weak, he became like the weak, right? 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 to 22. Circumcision would make his newest team member, Timothy, like other Jews, so he had him circumcised because he wanted to continue to reach Jews. It was necessary. It didn't have anything to do with justification. Nothing. It had nothing to do with, the, with, with Timothy's position with God in the gospel. Now, the Judaizers had twisted the meaning of this unique event, and it is a, a unique event. They had twisted its meaning, and now they were using it to promote circumcision as an apostolic requirement for the gospel or for justification. They were saying, look, Galatians, Paul himself had a young Gentile believer named Timothy circumcised. Heck, if an apostle preached and practiced circumcision, it has to be legit, right? Come on, man, these are the highest leaders. These are the future popes. We are simply following Paul's lead. If you obey us, you are in a sense obeying Paul because he's the one that set our example with Timothy. This is the kind of twisting they were presenting. Paul rebukes their chicanery by drawing a distinction between those who preach circumcision and those who don't. Those who preach circumcision as a means for justification, they do not suffer persecution. That's a, 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 a Jesus plus works kind of gospel. That's a, a faith plus works kind of justification. And nobody gets offended by that because everybody's trying to earn their way with God. So Paul just simply says here, man, if, if I was doing as the Judaizers are asserting or saying, I wouldn't, be, I, I wouldn't have been stoned this many times. I wouldn't have been almost beaten to death in a Galatian city. I wouldn't have gone through half this. I wouldn't have gone through any of the things that I've been going through for the gospel because I'd be preaching a man-centered gospel. When, when you add something to, to faith for justification, when you add works of the law or any kind of works to the gospel at all, you are essentially removing the offense of the cross. That's what you're doing. The cross is offensive because it demonstrates our total inability to self-justify or to self-save. The cross shouts, you can't do a darn thing for yourself. I had to come to do it. And when you start adding stuff to that cross, it makes this unoffensive. Well, it's a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of your effort. That's just false religion. Everyone wants to hear that. Who doesn't in our day and age want a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of my own effort? That's what everybody wants. Quite frankly, a great many of them just don't want anything to do with Jesus. They just want all self-effort. Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave three days later to secure everything that is necessary for the salvation of sinners like you and me. Nothing can be added to His perfect, finished work. In fact, He Himself said it on the cross. It is finished, John 19, 30. He didn't say, it's almost finished. As long as Phil gets circumcised, we're good to go. And I'd been like, did he just say what I thought he said? Circumcision is a work of the law. If we add it or anything to the work of Christ, we justify the sinner's efforts to save his or herself, and we remove the offensiveness of that old ugly, rugged cross. And I'm telling you this morning, a true 
teacher will not do this. A true believer will not do this. They won't do anything to deface or diminish the meaning and the impact of what happened at Calvary. They won't do it. They know that's how they're redeemed, how they've been bought, how they've been atoned for, how they've been purchased. They're not going to say anything that's contradictory to that. No true believer, no true teacher is going to do that. A true teacher will not do this. He will preach the truth just as Paul preached the truth. A true teacher will suffer persecution just as Paul suffered persecution. Why was Paul suffering persecution? Because he preached the cross of Christ without any distortion, without adding any works to the salvation. It's Christ in Christ alone, and that is the most offensive thing you can tell unbelievers. It is. I hate it. Who will be the true teacher's primary persecutor, right? Because as Paul said, hey, if I were doing this, I wouldn't even be persecuting, but I'm being persecuted because I'm actually preaching the true gospel. He was being persecuted. Who is it that would be the true teacher's persecutor? Who's going to come after true teachers of the gospel more so than anyone else? It's going to be false teachers. It's not just the unbelieving world and, and atheists. I'm, I'm, they can do some damage, but it's not them. It's going to be those who have found a way into the church who are preaching another gospel. Those are the ones who are going to put it on the true teacher. It's false converts. It's false believers. It's unbelievers in the church posing as believers. It's teachers who are false teachers who are posing as true teachers. Who's, going to per who's persecuting Paul? The Judaizers, where were they at? In the churches. In the churches. Not on the outside yelling with a bullhorn. Inside posing as true teachers. This is how it's always been. We, we tend to think that it's outside forces you know, that are always coming against the church. It's the state that's coming against the church. And on the other, this, this may be true to a degree, but the, 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 the greatest threat and the greatest damage causer, the greatest persecutor, are those from within. It's the false teachers. If you preach the true gospel, you will have people in your congregations, you will have people that you may have preached next to, thought they were okay, you will have them come down on you. You will suffer persecution just as Paul suffered persecution. I like what MacArthur said. I think it's in your bulletin. False religion has always been and will continue to be the most aggressive and dominant persecutor of the church. Satan fights God, and satanic religion fights the true faith. And I'm just adding to what he said, and many times this is happening within our own context, inside our churches. If you are a true proclaimer or teacher of God's word, if you lay out the gospel just as it is written in Scripture, you do not add to it, you do not subtract from it, you will suffer at the hands of false teachers and false religion at some point. In some nations, it's immediately. In some third world countries, it's immediately. Preach as we preach here in this pulpit. Preach these messages in the Sudan. I'd already be dead. Preach it in Iran. I'd be incarcerated. I'd be asking for a meal plan. Can you feed my family? Serious. Here, I can get away with it. And I'm going to 
keep doing it even when I can't get away with it. And I think the time is coming where we won't be able to get away with it. But if you stick to the true gospel, you're going to have trouble. And it kind of makes you wonder why there isn't a whole lot more trouble in America. Maybe it's because people aren't sticking to the true gospel. Not just because we live in a land of ease with a First Amendment that guards our rights. We were just told to shut our churches down. Many of us did, and some are probably still shut down. But I wonder if the reason why we're not taking more heat here in the good old U.S. of A. is because we really aren't preaching the gospel. We really aren't sticking to the truth. We've softened everything up for our listeners. You stick to it, it's going to happen. It might even happen in your own church where you thought you were safe. <laughs> right? It's happened here. Mm-hmm. It has. Remember, the Judaizers were inside the Galatian churches, not outside. And remember, when, when they come for you, whether they be in the church or outside of the church, because you stick to the truth when they come, don't capitulate. Continue to stand firm. Follow Paul's instructions in the next line. Let's move to our sixth and final characteristic of false teachers. And this is where it gets insane. You ready? We didn't put seatbelts in, but if we had them, I'd say put it on right now. Put your masks on. Just kidding. This is, this, is, this, is, this is like one of those texts that's, did I just read this right? Mm-hmm. Sixthly, false teachers should be cut off. Verse 12, this is the way Paul says it in absolute eloquence. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I don't see any surprised looks on your faces. You, you do realize what he just said, don't you? You know what it means to emasculate? Mm-hmm. This is the Apostle Paul saying this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Don't walk away out of this meeting today thinking that you can go around cussing or telling people to emasculate themselves. Be careful, there's a context. But this is literally what he just said. Read it yourself. This is not the Phil translation. Paul closes his polemic against false teachers with, I would say easily, probably the harshest, if not the harshest, one of the harshest statements to ever come from his pen or his own lips. He was so passionately opposed to the heresy of the Judaizers that he wished that they would even emasculate themselves. The Greek verb for emasculate is apokopto, and it means to cut off. Since the Judaizers were absolutely obsessed with circumcision, you know, removing the foreskins from their privates, Paul suggests that they go ahead and finish the job and cut it all off. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. Yeah. He is literally saying, you guys are addicted to circumcision. I wish you would just take it a little further. Go for the neuter. Just, just, just move the knife a little bit more and hit that. That's what he's saying. This, this is insane. This is in your Bible. 
Let's make a sum up. People uncomfortable. Look at Cammy getting out of here. <laughs> the word never makes her uncomfortable. Why don't you? He's literally saying, why don't you just castrate yourselves? Now, I think he was referring to the cult of Sybil, a popular pagan nature goddess in Asia Minor during Paul's day. Many devout male worshipers in this cult, they would castrate themselves and all its priests. They were self-made eunuchs. This was like the highest form of worship of this cult goddess was for guys just to go ahead and emasculate themselves. I wonder how that religion would go down in America. People would probably, sounds like a good idea, since everything else is backwards now, right? MacArthur wrote, Paul was not expressing a crude or cruel desire for the Judaizers' punishment. God would take care of that, right? We talked about that. They're going to be judged. He spoke rather of their mutilating themselves. His point was, if the Judaizers are so insistent on circumcision as a means of pleasing God... Why don't they go all the way and just castrate themselves as a supreme act of religious devotion, kind of like the, uh, the Sibyllines and its priests do? This is what he's saying in the context. You guys are so obsessed with circumcision, why don't you just, why don't you just take up the mantle of the Sibyllines and do what they're doing? Go all the way. Now, verse 12 is also instructional. Mm-hmm. It is. This is a, a brutal, brutal rebuke. Through this brutal rebuke, the apostle is instructing the Galatians to cut off the Judaizers. What does he tell the is he telling the Galatians to go and castrate the Judaizers? Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying I want you to cut them off, kick them out of your churches. They, they shouldn't be in your churches. Cut them off from the body of Christ. Cut them off from the fellowship. Cut them out of the pulpits. Cut them off and get rid of them. Emasculate them. This is what he's saying. Get them out of your churches. Apokopto can also be translated as to cut away, which kind of sounds like a surgical term, doesn't it? Paul is saying, cut away the Judaizers from the body of Christ. They're like a deadly disease. They're like a cancer. Cut them out. Get rid of them before they kill you. It's almost like he's prescribing surgery for them. Your surgery is to surgically cut those false teachers, to emasculate, cut out, cut off, get them out of your churches. This is what he's saying. And these instructions for them, they're for modern-day and postmodern-day Christians as well. They're for us, especially for the elders of churches. False teachers are not to be ignored. Well, you know, he's just got a different perspective. He's just got a little different view. He denies the deity of Christ. That's not a little matter. Well, he just, you know, he's just a little bit different. Maybe if we coddle him that'll you know because love conquers all and all that now they're not to be coddled they're to be called out and if they spurn our correction they are to be cut off or cut out of our churches that's how you deal with false teachers 
Yeah, I think that sometimes people teach falsely by basic ignorance, and they're not trying to be a false teacher. That's why you give them a shot and call them out and say, look, this is what the Word teaches, but you're saying this. And if they say, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't believe that. If they act like Apollos, then, then fine, restore them. But if they just say, you got a spirit of religion, you're wrong, bye, Felicia. Get them out. Throw them out of your church. And, and don't throw them out and then keep their songs. Throw the songs out with them. Throw the Bible study materials out with them. Get rid of them entirely. That's how you're to deal with them. Emasculate. Cut them off. Cut them out. Luther says, Paul does right to curse these troublers of the Galatians, wishing that they were cut off and rooted out of the church of God and that their doctrine might perish forever. That's Luther. Luther was dealing with this at multiple levels in his ministry. Most of it was coming from the papacy, the pope himself. Cut off that pope. He says Paul was doing right by saying this and desiring this, and I believe that applies to us. We will do right if we handle similar situations the way that Paul did. Right? The scripture is our authority. If Paul treated false teachers this way, it's okay for us to do it. We need to cut them out of our churches. And I think it takes, a, undoubtedly, it takes a lot of courage to do this. It takes a lot of courage to take a stand. It takes a lot of courage to speak up, right? Because you're going to offend somebody and probably a few other people. Because false teachers in every church have followers, you're not going to just lose a false teacher. You're going to probably lose a false section of your congregation. Glory be to God. Well, we won't be able to make our budget. You were taking money off false believers. How does that make you feel? Should we allow false believers and false teachers to be donating and put money in our boxes? No! It's for the true believers. It's for the real worshipers. Just going to have to deal with the fallout. Trust the Lord. It takes some courage to identify a wolf. It takes more courage to remove that wolf from the sheep pen, but it is absolutely necessary because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I told you the story two weeks ago about a whole church that just started off with one guy sputtering and uttering nonsense, and then the whole church believed it's nonsense two years later, changed their bylaws and everything. The whole church fell into that error. Doesn't take much. Just one person. Get them out. It takes courage, though, and takes boldness. We need to remember Paul's final words to his young protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1, 7. To Timothy, my beloved child, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. True believers have been given a, not been given a spirit of fear. We don't have a spirit of timidity or of fear. We have been given actually in the highest sense the greatest spirit, the Holy Spirit, who fills us with divine power and love and self-control. Did you know it's actually a loving thing to remove a false teacher? You're loving the rest of the congregation. And you're loving that false teacher by calling them out. 
Love can and needs to be offensive at times. Yeah. We have been given the Holy Spirit who fills us with divine power, love, self-control. Why? To protect each other from false teachers and to obey or to observe everything that Christ commanded. Matthew 28, 20. If you are a true believer, the Holy Spirit is in you, and so is this divine power, this divine strength to take a stand when necessary and to obey the word. Be like Timothy. Be like Paul. Be like Jesus and take your stand. Protect your brothers and sisters. Call out false teachers. Cut out false teachers. And cut out the man-centered resources that are coming out of their fake, superficial churches. This is a right response. We don't need their songs. We don't need their books. We don't need their Bible studies, if you can even call them that. God has provided plenty of biblically sound resources that help us, that will help us to worship Him in spirit and truth. You know, in some ways, continuing with the other stuff from these false churches, it's kind of like hanging on to the golden calf. It really is. Do you know what Moses did to the golden calf? Kept it around for six months so the Israelites could continue to have man-centered worship? No, he threw it in a fire. And then he ground it into dust. And then he spread the powder over the water. And then he made the Israelites drink that water so they could taste the bitterness of idolatry and man-centered worship. And so that at one point, the Israelites would urinate and pee out what that symbolizes there. That's what false religion is to God. It's urine. You keep this stuff around and it's like you're just polishing the calf. That's what happens when we do this. We're not supposed to hang on to the golden calf of man-centered worship, feel-good worship. That's just a form of idolatry. That's all it is. We're not, we don't come together on Sunday morning to worship the Lord because we want it to make us feel good. We're coming to pay our homage and thanks and adoration to God who has saved us. We don't come here to make ourselves feel good. How many times have you had someone say, well, I just don't like going to that church because I don't like the worship music. It just doesn't inspire me. But you go to church to be inspired? That sounds like Joel Osteen. That's a false teacher. Maybe we need to redefine why we come together here, why we do what we do. We come here for the Lord, and in coming here for the Lord to worship Him, He blesses us. He's so good that even when we come to serve Him and, and to praise Him and to thank Him, that, that He blesses those who do this. And so you come to church and you come with the right attitude and all that, you walk out blessed. 
But if you're coming here just to get that blessing, don't come. You'd be better off staying home. It's just idolatry. We need to be some golden calf destroying fools. We do. Pick your poison. Where is the idolatry in your life? We all have it. It may not be Hillsong songs. That's just an example of the nonsense that churches are using. They cast out the teacher, but they keep the songs. We all struggle with idolatry, don't we? What have we given ourselves over to that's offensive to the Lord? It's all about making us feel better or given a temporary respite from the pains of life. The pains of life are meant to sanctify you. Quit running from them. Where is the idolatry in you? Calvin called our hearts an, an idol factory. Guess what it is. Maybe you don't have an issue with carrying on with these resources and songs from these goofy false churches, but maybe you've got something else. What have you given your heart to? Christ wants it. He wants it entirely. You got a golden calf? Throw it in the fire. Grind it up. Put it on the water. Drink it. Urinate it. Get it out of your life. Get it out of your life. We haven't been given a spirit of fear or timidity. We have the Holy Spirit. We can do this. We can surely do it. We act like today because of grace we just can't do anything. You know, well, I've got grace and that means I just don't have to do anything about the stuff in my life. Grace empowers us to make these changes. Don't use grace as a license for idolatry. Don't keep erring on the side of, well, Christ will forgive me. That's a stupid thing to think. In fact, read a little bit further down in chapter 5 where he starts talking about the deeds or works of the flesh, where he juxtaposes those with the deeds or works of the Holy Spirit. There's a real, really challenging section coming, friends. Mm. Have we gotten ourselves to the point where we're just erring on the side of grace and idolatry and immorality and all these things are okay because of grace? That is a wrong view. That's a false gospel in and of itself. What's your idol? Destroy it. We're supposed to be like Moses and throw this refuse in the fire. That's what we're to do. Amen.